This is FBG Jen. And FBG Kristen. And I'm FBG Margot, host and producer. You're listening to the podcast that will help you keep a lid on the junk in the trunk and inspire you to live a happy and confident life. Each episode, we chat with motivational experts and celebs and share our own candid adventures in being healthy. If you're looking for a podcast that's equal parts hilarious and enlightening, well then welcome to the Fit Bottom Girls podcast. We're happy to say that Veridesk is a proud sponsor of the Fit Bottomed Girls podcast and our go-to choice for an active workspace. Veridesk quickly and easily transforms your desk into a standing desk, and you can try it all risk-free for 30 days with free shipping both ways. Find out more at veridesk.com. That's V-A-R-I desk.com. Welcome back to the Fit Bottom Girls podcast. This is FBG Margo, and on the line today we have Jen. Hey. And we have Kristen. Hi. <laughs> Jen, you did not sound very I know. Energy. It's Thanksgiving week when this is coming out. You should be psyched. <laughs> Super psyched. <laughs> I think you're just sad because you weren't in on this interview today. Right. Uh, Kristen and I got to sp- speak to, it's Dr. Stu Ferrimond. He's our guest today, and he wrote this excellent book. I freaked out over it. I said, of course, I got rid- got in contact with Kristen right away. Like, you need to get this book, and we need to have him on the show. So we, <laughs> I got you the book, and um, you loved it. You said your husband actually really loved it. And the book is, by the way, called The Science of Cooking. Yes. It's, it's really cool. It's uh, like for anybody who is interested in food, cooking, nutrition, the best ways to make things, the best ways to eat things, why it's good to do one thing versus another when it seems like it should be the same same result. I mean, it just has a little bit of everything. It's everything from, from baking to making sauces to like how to know if your egg is still good enough to eat and cook with to the best knife you should have for cutting. It, it's it, it even like he's, he's a food scientist. So he even like looked into the best biscuit to dunk into your tea. Like that, he's like that specific oh. with it. Yeah, he's a really interesting person. He had um, a brain tumor. He was a medical doctor, and he had a tumor, and then the tumor turned into he had a form of epilepsy. So he couldn't practice medicine anymore, so he turned to teaching. And then he talks about it in the show today. But he loves science, and he loves food, and he just put them together and created this world for himself where he's an expert on it. And he told us, he wrote this book, by the way, in six months and when you see this wow i know we, yeah he said it was a lot of late nights but if you're looking for a good christmas gift uh, I, I would recommend it but i guess i wanted to ask you guys what your favorite tips for cooking and food prep what are your favorite kitchen prep hacks so lately i have done sheet pan dinners which i know this is like a thing in the internet like on the internet like it's not a new thing, but it is a new thing for me. And it is life changing. <laughs> what is we it? We had leftover. So all you do, it, it, I mean, there are different varieties, but it's basically um, you chop up a bunch of like, or you have pieces of meat, you chop up some veggies, you put them all on a sheet, like a baking sheet with, that's got a rim on it. So, cause you're going to have juices and stuff. Then you toss with olive oil and seasoning, mix it all up in the sheet. So, so far we're talking about, these are the things that you dirty, the cutting board and your knife. And then the sheet, mm-hmm. you mix it all in the sheet and you all put it in like you put it all together, 425 in the oven, roast until it's done. It does take about like an hour to get things like roasty, mm-hmm. but all the flavors meld together and it's delicious. We did bone in chicken thighs and carrots, like two inch pieces of carrots, onions, um, like cubed, like big cubed sweet potatoes. And basically you just, you just put it in all together and then uh, smoked paprika a little bit of lemon juice I put on there olive oil salt and pepper um, garlic powder mix it all around stick it in the oven take it out like 20 minutes like move everything because things will start to kind of like brown mm-hmm. especially all the veggies keep them and then eventually you just end up with these caramelized veggies that have so much flavor and are so delicious and then the meat is like the chicken was just cooked perfectly just like fall off so much flavor so wait, and again the... it's like it's 10 minutes of like prep and chopping and very little cooking for a delicious meal like I would serve it to people if they came over for dinner it's that good so you I'm sorry you cook the meat with it at the same time all on one sheet wow you're blowing my life changing yeah no that sounds amazing yeah I found a real simple recipe and then of course I like you know Dr. Stu 
may be a little upset with me about this, but I kind of threw all the science of cooking out the window and just like used whatever I had. <laughs> That's sometimes how I cook, uh, but it turned out really well. So I, I made it into a recipe and then uh, um, we'll have the, we have the recipe on Fit Bottom Deep so we can make sure that the link is in so people can um, uh, try it because it is, it is really, really good. And I wish that it's something that I've been making, I mean, for years because it's, so easy and now that i've like looked at other recipes you can you know you can do fish and veggies or like pork chops and veggies and stone fruit i mean there's kind of like no end to what you can do here wow yeah even fish Kristen. even fish awesome so what about you Kristen? uh um, so you know i'm a really big fan of um and i'm going to say this wrong because i don't speak french um, but mise en place, um, where it's the the idea of preparing your dishes and ingredients, um, like and having it all measured out and out in front of you before you begin. It means everything um, in its place, I think. Yes, uh, right. literally putting in place. Putting in place. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I and I'm not. I, I think that this also technically, like, if we want to be all like, you know, snobby about it, like, I think it also refers to putting things away as you're done with them, which is not a thing that I do. Um, anyone who's <laughs> ever been to my house <laughs> can attest to that. Um, but yeah, I, I really find the process of, um, of cooking and making something, even if it's a brand new recipe, so much easier if I've got it all out. And, um, and right now, like we're, you know, we're heading into, into Thanksgiving, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit later. For me, that often means that I'm making multiple things at the same time to make the best use of, of my time and of my oven and all of that. So having things like set out, organized, knowing what's going in what and when is is huge. And then I, I even take that as far as to, you know, when I'm hosting or something, like I even create like a timeline saying when when I need to start making something, when it needs to go into the oven, when it needs to come out, what's going to be in there with it. Uh, so it's, I, I, it's a little more work on the front end, but you know, once you get into the the moment of actually doing all the cooking and everything, it just makes it so seamless. It's really nice. So I, so for me, I, I don't eat a lot of grains when I do, I really enjoy myself and it's like things that I love in this world, pizza and bagels. You know, I mm-hmm. can't have them every day. Obviously, they're not that good for you, but occasionally you have to have them. And two things I could tell you about reheating or, or storing bagels, bagels especially, you take a bagel, you cut it in half, and you put it in the freezer. And then you, cook, and you toast it in the toaster oven. It'll come out perfect. If you try to take a bagel that's frozen and then nuke it and then cut it in half and then put it in the toaster or whatever, or just let it defrost, it, it just never, it's never right. It's never right. You got to cut it right away and put it in the freezer right away and it'll always be perfect. And it'll stay for like a month or so. So that's my bagel tip. You, wow. You cut them in half. Trust, trust me, it'll change your life. And, <laughs> and pizza, you can reheat in a pan, in a frying pan with just a little bit of olive oil. And it'll come back just the way it was the day before. And that's, those are my two big tips not healthy okay but just you know when you're treating yourself why not so those, well, those have yeah. it taste good you know what I mean yeah. like if you're gonna eat pizza like yeah, yeah exactly make it, make it good yeah make it awesome yeah so we were talking uh this is not technically a cookbook it's the science of cooking it's all about what it is to cook and to, like you know it's what it is about to how to store fish and everything like how to store eggs how to all this stuff so we I wanted to ask you guys do you have a favorite cookbook that you use over and over again and what is it so who wants to go first you want me to go yeah sure sure <laughs> I have two that immediately came to mind uh, there is a book by Ted Allen um, called Chopped it's like based off of the TV show Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is about about the cookbook. I mean, it's like really, really delicious, but there just seems to be a lot of recipes that I come back to time and time again or that I use so much that they're, I, I have committed them to memory, which I think is kind of the, the sign that a cookbook is, is, is really your jam. So uh, he's got a recipe in there for a tropical kale salad that is steamed kale with uh, mango and peanuts and red pepper. And then you actually cut half the mango and then use the other half you put half of it, half the mango cut up in the salad and use the other half reserved to make a dressing where mm. you also put peanuts in there and red wine vinegar. And, um, 
that kind of taught me I'm like, oh, I'm like, okay, so this is how you make a really good dressing. I understand, you know, put half the mango in there. So that's just so delicious. And I want to say we have that recipe published somewhere where I've made enough of a tweaks I on it. I think so. I think so too. So I'll see if I can find that. It's so good. And then the other one that I use all the time is you guys know I'm a big Nom Nom paleo fan. Her two cookbooks, so good. Use them all the time. But her her most recent one, the uh, the ready set go like the the second one she did. She has a recipe that she says in the intro she adapted from um, Tim Ferriss because he was looking for a a way to start his morning with something that was very nutritionally dense, um, high protein, high high and healthy fat but that was also sustainable and had a good fat or healthy fat ratio so your omega threes to omega sixes and he came up with this dish that's like i don't even remember the name of it but it's it's sardines it involves sardines sardines packed in olive oil and i remember looking at it and reading it and being like well i'm like well if if freaking Nom Nom Paleo and Tim Ferriss, who's like the king of productivity, you know, like if it's working for them, I'm like, maybe I'm going to try this. So I tried it and it has now become something that I make, gosh, like at least once a week, I'll make kind of like meal prep it um, when I have time and then just keep eating it. And it is uh, a can of sardines with the olive oil drain. They're kind of mashed up along with like some avocado, some lime juice, some mustard, salt and pepper, paprika. I usually put a little bit of garlic powder in and you just like, oh, and pickles. And then you smash it all together. It's kind of like a tuna salad, except it's sardines. Mm-hmm. And it it tastes good. The sardines, like I really was like, I thought there'd be more of an ick factor with them. And it's actually a very mild fish and they really are like um, sustainable. They're low in mercury and they're high in omega three. So if you're looking to bust out of your comfort zone a little bit for something really, really healthy, I encourage you to check it out. I know it sounds weird, but it's really tasty. And sometimes this is not recommended by Nom Nom Paleo or Tim Ferriss, I believe, but it's also <laughs> good if you eat it with tortilla chips. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, all so many things moderation. are good with tortilla chips. <laughs> right? Yeah. For being so real. True. I'll be like, yeah. here's a spinach leaf on a tortilla chip. By Delicious. the way, at Whole Foods, I don't know if they have them where you are, but they sell now a gluten-free tortilla chip, and it's made with coconut flour, and it is crazy delicious. What's uh, it called? Yeah, it has like, there's one with sea salt, and there's one with nacho flavor, and you can't tell the difference, and it's so good. That's, that's, I'm is sorry. It's siete? It's the siete? Yeah. Yeah. There, Okay. Side note, I mean, you can have like corn tortillas, but they're not grain free, obviously. Right. But those, the siete, they actually, um, have you ever had their, they're like flour tortillas, but they're kind of like flour tortillas, like not chips, but just tortillas. No, I haven't tried it yet. This, oh is, this, this is new to me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I reviewed some for Eats, I believe, and they are delicious because mm-hmm. I had tried so many gluten-free wraps and tortillas and stuff that just kind of fell apart and just didn't have really that much flavor. They kind of had a weird aftertaste and mm-hmm. these are fantastic. Well, I recommend their so, chips. So yeah. And it's delicious. Yeah. But the tortillas were the thing that really blew my mind. That's awesome. Oh, what about you, Kristen? You know, I, I have a lot of cookbooks, which I'm sure doesn't surprise anybody. <laughs> um, and I don't know that I really have like one in particular that I go to all the time, but um, I do find that the, I have a, the runner's world cookbook. I find that that one is a really good one for inspiration because it just, it really runs the gamut of like all different types of food. And, you know, obviously they're all designed with, they were all created with runners in mind. So, so I really, I I do like that one and it's got some really interesting stuff. Um, There's like a walnut and mushroom taco recipe that's I mean, sounds super weird and mm-hmm. is really quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the whole protein vegetarian is another one that that I do like a lot um, because you know I, I don't eat meat, but I do try to get a lot of um, a lot of high quality proteins. So that one is is super handy. And then I think it's also um, uh, Kitchen Intuition, which has all the recipes, which we yeah. interviewed Devin Sisson. I don't know, a few months ago, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that one, and I think it, the reason I like that one so much, as we talked about in that show, is the fact that like I, I really like being inspired by recipes. I don't always follow them perfectly. I don't always, um, 
I very rarely actually follow them perfectly. I usually add in flavors that I like or take out things that I don't want to eat. And hers is really great for that because she basically is telling you, hey, this is what you should do. This is what I like. But if you like something else, here are some other ideas. So yeah, those. And then I, I mean, people just send me recipes all the time because they know that I like playing around in the kitchen and trying new things. So, so like the internet, I guess, is kind of the other one. <laughs> um, and then I, I am old school where sometimes I'll print them out. I've got, I have a, a book that just has like sheets of things stuffed in there um, that I keep going to. I have one of those. Me too. <laughs> yep. Was like I used to put them. Now I'm thinking about it. I think it's still in my closet over here, actually, that has just like hundreds of pages of things I ripped out from like cooking light from when I was yeah. like 20. Yeah. yeah. So same here when I first moved to New York and I was first learning how to cook. And my first yeah. job, actually, this book that we're talking about today was published by DK Publishing. That was my first job in New York. I worked for DK <laughs> Publishing in New York. Really? Yeah. And they have beautiful cookbooks. If you ever know about, if you yeah. look them up. They have gorgeous cookbooks, and they have this one. It was just like the ultimate kitchen cookbook or something like that. It was just this utilitarian cookbook. And it's the first cookbook I had on my own that I owned, and I just stuffed recipes in there constantly. And then over the years, I hosted Thanksgiving. I had to learn how to cook a Thanksgiving turkey, so I shoved a recipe in the book there, and it's all yellowing and stuff like that, but I'll never get rid of that cookbook because it meant so much to me. Yeah. You know? And then the other one I, I really love, and I go back to it all the time, and I, I asked you guys, give me a minute to run to the living room to grab it, but it's a Practical Paleo, and it's Diane Sanfilippo, and it's just a oh. fantastic cookbook. And you know, I know Paleo, it's, it's a meat, you know, people think it's meat-centric, but it's actually more about cooking vegetables and how to cook them properly. And she has amazing recipes and she has really great recipes for spices for different kinds of spices and how to use them together like smoky paprika whatever and she just it's just a really great cookbook if you guys are looking for something you know this christmas you know it's the holidays that we're going to be putting this out there so mm -hmm. there's a really great idea especially for group cooking and cooking for a lot of people and i guess i just wanted to ask you guys because this is going to be posting the week of thanksgiving uh what are you guys doing for thanksgiving do you go someplace do you host people what's going on for you guys this year i we have hosted here um my family a few times but kind of as our it, as our family has grown it's sometimes more difficult to to host like a big group but i've been going to my parents house and we tend to like tag team the cooking a lot which is really really nice like my dad will smoke a turkey he's like really good at smoking meats of all kinds um so smoke, smoke turkey is always awesome but usually uh, my husband and i are in charge of desserts because i'm gluten-free so i'm kind of like the pain in the ass so I, I usually am the one that's like oh no i got the desserts i can make it because i want to make sure that i can eat something yeah sure <laughs> you know so i'll do like the pumpkin pie yeah and then then i have an alana's pantry recipe that i use a lot that's like a chocolate pecan pie that's really good um where you just like press the the pie crust into the pans you don't have to, like roll anything out it's really really good and tasty and then whipped potatoes mm. like we take whipped potatoes to christmas stuff with family and thanksgiving and my grandmother taught me how to make mashed potatoes since like the time i can remember and it's it's so simple because it's literally just baking potatoes that are you know peeled boiled until they're soft and then you mix in milk and a little bit of butter and i like them over salted so i over salt them i like them lumpy i know no and then these and then they're like whipped i mean so yep. you get out like the mixer and you whip them until and you keep adding more and more um more and more milk until you get the consistency that you want and that is like that to me oh whipped potatoes mashed potatoes are something that are so special that I only have usually those few times a year but I really enjoy and they they just kind of like that's what the holidays taste like for me me too my grandmother's from the south and she loves that's to what, cook yeah. yeah and and they love their mashed potatoes in the south like she's all about and yeah. she made her own gravy from scratch and I, yep. with the drippings in the pan and everything it was so good yeah that always makes me think of the holidays yep what are you doing uh, Kristen are you guys oh you guys have a, a special turkey thing you guys you guys do over there right yeah so we we host um we've hosted for quite a few years and we host my family and my husband's family and then we are very much a like anybody who's in town come come celebrate with us um, which is super fun for me because I, I'm the only child of two only children. And 
three of my grandparents passed away when I was really young. So we always had really small celebrations. Um, you know, Christmas dinner was, or, you know, Thanksgiving dinner wasn't, didn't really seem like a much different night than a lot of other nights just because it was, you know, it was like the four of us. Right. And that, as it usually was. So it's really exciting for me to have like a whole house full of people and lots of stuff going on. And yeah, and it's, and it ends up being a bit of a group effort. We do, we have an infrared um, turkey fryer that my husband makes the turkey with every year. So you get, it's like a fried turkey, but it is healthier. And he's, he's kind of perfected it over the last year or so. So um, he still gets like a nice crispy skin, I guess. I, <laughs> don't I this is <laughs> we're talking about yeah. meat again yeah I know all we do is talk about meat on this show <laughs> <laughs> and uh and then my mom has uh has a few things that she she always takes um like uh the dressing and um she makes pumpkin pies and I she usually handles the um the mashed potatoes and then I just sort of put it up for um for grabs for whoever wants if people have things that they make um, awesome. My mother-in-law does a wonderful job with doing like amazing appetizers and snacky bits. Cause we usually start with like Bloody Marys and mimosas early ish with, you know, with a whole snacking table. Um, and that way people, even if they do have Thanksgiving plans, if they'd still like to come by and say hello, it's easy for people to come in, you know, have, you know, have a little snack with us, sit and chat and then go on to whatever they have going on that day. And then I think probably the, the dish that I make that people get very excited about is uh, I do a jalapeno corn pudding, which is like mm. super delicious, not much in the way of redeeming nutritional value, <laughs> um, which is why we only have it like once a, once a year. But it's, I mean, it's so, it's so good. I think we have enough people coming this year that I think I'm going to be making like two big batches of that. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a big one this year. So I'm pretty excited. Very cool. Yeah. How about you, Margo? What are you doing? So I have friends that live on the other side of Prospect Park in Brooklyn, and they have a really nice sized place. And it's just like a bunch of people. And we just kind of show up and there's like a couple of dozen of us at this point. And I always bring the cranberry cornbread. It's uh, I, I make it and mm -hmm. it has a little bit of candied ginger mixed in with it. And it is, I have to tell you guys, it is so dope. It is the best thing you'll ever taste. Mm -hmm. And I get mm -hmm. requests for it for Thanksgiving and Christmas every year. Everybody wants it. Mm -hmm. They want to bring it. So I make batches of it between Thanksgiving and New Year's. Mm -hmm. like almost every weekend I'm in my kitchen <laughs> stuck making this stuff. But it's so tasty and good. I'll put the recipe in the show notes. It's a Martha Stewart recipe. But I, oh my God, I'm, I'm getting hungry now just thinking about all this food, you guys. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. So uh, I guess we should go and get something to eat for us, but uh, we'll start the show now with Dr. Stu. Yeah. Did you know that being more active at work, like standing more and sitting less, can help improve your health, reduce back pain, boost energy, and increase both your metabolism and your productivity? True story. And our favorite way to get those benefits is with Veridesk. See for yourself at veridesk.com. That's V-A-R-I-desk.com. Specializing in food science, Dr. Stuart Fairman, a.k.a. Dr. Stu, is a science and health writer, presenter, and educator. He has conducted wide-ranging food science research and makes regular appearances on TV, radio, and at public events, and his writing appears in national and international publications, including the BBC, the Daily Mail, and New Scientist. Dr. Stu is an experienced science communicator and founded the online lifestyle science magazine, Guru, which won support from the Wellcome Trust, the world's largest medical research charity. He is here today to talk about his new book from DK Publishing, The Science of Cooking, Every Question Answered to Perfect Your Cooking. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stu. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for having me. Well, today on the line, it's myself, Margo, FBG Margo, and on the line today from Florida, we have FBG Kristen. Hi, guys. Hey. So I'm lucky enough to ask you the first question. I get plenty of books about food and cooking sent to my attention for review, but as soon as I started flipping through the science of cooking, I was just completely knocked out by all of the amazing information and tips inside. Can you please give us a little bit about your background and how the book came to be? Uh, my background, I'm a medical doctor originally, uh, and 10 years ago I had to leave medicine 
uh, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor as it happened and um, I had surgery and then I de developed epilepsy afterwards uh, which kind of uh, which forced me to leave medicine I then went into teaching and at that point I discovered um, the real joy in uh, explaining to people the science of the world around them uh, it was, I was teaching kind of 16, 17 year old, uh, most of the girls, and they hated the whole idea of science. They wanted to go and do nursing and kind of uh, caring jobs. And I, um, I kind of, I wanted to show them that, that science wasn't this boring academic thing that you, that you just, um, that, you know, you sit in a classroom and you get fed facts. And it's a way of seeing the world around you in, in a new way and appreciating actually the wonder of the world that's around us. Uh, and so from teaching, I kind of evolved into going into uh, science writing and science communicating. And then I kind of fell into a, a niche of um, food science research. And I ended up doing um, various bits of uh, food science research for, for a variety of companies, looking at such eclectic things as uh, which is the best biscuit to dunk in your, uh, your cup of tea or your cup of coffee, and uh, how to cook the perfect burger, and which beer is the gassiest. Um, and uh, DK, DK Books uh, got in touch with me, and they said, um, we've got this idea. Uh, for writing a book about the science of cooking, would you be interested? And I was just blown away because it's the kind of book that I've always wanted to write. I remember when I was at university and I was just getting into cooking and I was thinking I'd love to write a book about the science of cooking. And so um, I uh, snatched their hand off and um, yes, six months or so later, um, this is the, uh, the fruit of my labors. Um, yes, and it kind of covers pretty much <laughs> pretty much every kind of aspect of cooking you can imagine there's 160 questions answered and the whole idea is that it's uh, a practical um, understandable book uh, because I'm a big believer in that you don't need jargon to understand the science of what's going on around you and so I was really uh, keen that we didn't put any jargon in there and that we made everything understandable but without watering down uh, the facts and what it's actually really all about. Um, so yeah, that's that's the book, and um, my my dream, my dream, my heart is that people would uh, enjoy the book and that they'd use it to let them um, cook with more joy, to be able to experiment, to be able to do things that they thought I had to be a restaurant chef to do. Um, yeah, there's stuff in there like how to cure cure salmon, which you can just do at home with some some salt and some household stuff. Or how to smoke meat. Uh, so yes, um, as I say, delighted that you're enjoying the book. Yeah, well, and it's not just us who who's loving it. Um, this is one of the things that arrived at my house, and my husband actually snatched it up immediately and got really excited. And that's that's not always the case with the things that I receive to review. So thank you for that. Uh, pleasure. Um, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I have to say, like, I, my jaw dropped a little bit when you said six months later, this book came to be because, yeah, it is, I mean, we're looking at, what, 200 and some pages, um, 250 yeah. pages, give or take, of, of information. And I had assumed that you had had to spend quite a lot longer than that researching it. So anyway, that just that blew my mind. But speaking a lot, of having a lot of, my... a lot of late nights. <laughs> oh, I, I can't even imagine. But speaking of having minds blown, I'm wondering if there is maybe one specific fact in there that you learned while um, while researching and writing this book, or maybe one thing that you did know that you think readers will be just totally shocked to learn. Anything that was just like, oh my gosh, I didn't know this was the case. Gotta share this. Amazing. Uh, that's a really good question, and you're the the second person to have asked me that today. And, <laughs> I, and and the first time went, oh, I don't really know, and then I all of a sudden gave them ten things that I thought were the most amazing thing ever. Uh, but <laughs> I will give you a fact about ice cream because I think ice cream is uh, one of the most fantastic uh, foods. I think it should almost have its own food group. Uh, but ice cream, most of the ice cream that we buy in the shops is about fifty percent air which I think is quite impressive. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's how they make um, soft scoop, uh, soft scoop, uh, soft serve ice cream, um, is that if you, um, if 
think about it. Like, so if you if you freeze cream, I don't know if you ever have um, cream in your fridge and maybe your your fridge is set too low, um, yeah. then it, it turns solid. It's rock solid. Um, and I remember when I was a kid, the, the ice cream that I used to, to get used to be really hard. You had to take it out of the freezer for, uh, like, you know, like a quarter of an hour before you could even get a spoon into it. But nowadays we get this um, kind of your, your Ben and Jerry's stuff and you can just eat it out of the pot. Um, and that's because this soft serve um, ice cream idea was, was created. And if you uh, blend it with air, um, it basically makes it softer. Um, and um, and fluffier, and you have this really nice mouthfeel. It doesn't freeze um, freeze as hard. Um, and we've got a, we've got a nice diagram in there which shows you, you kind of these it's, it's bubbles of air surrounded by like sugary syrup and ice crystals that hold it in there all together. And um, yeah, so that's the uh, that's the secret behind soft serve um, super creamy ice cream. So if you were to drop by my kitchen and look through the utensils drawers, and let's just be frank, you know, all the drawers <laughs> and cupboards, you would be surprised how much stuff I have just crammed in there. Are there what are the utensils we really need to keep on hand? And what are the things we could definitely get rid of or donate to Goodwill? I think generally gadgets that just do one thing, um, you tend, they're often a waste of time. The things that every cook needs is you need a decent knife and every cookbook and chef will tell you that. Um, but you do you need a good chef's knife, um, one that's kind of got a got a, a wide edge to it so that you can crush garlic with a side. Um, you, so you need a good um, chef's knife. And there's a lot of uh, difference between the quality of, of chef chef's knives. Um, and there's a difference between stamped knives and forged knives. Um, and you can, um, there's stuff in the book about how to spot the difference between the two, but a forged knife is um, much sturdier than a stamped knife. A stamped knife is they get a sheet of metal and they just like a stencil cut out the shape of the knife and they put a, put a handle around it and then sharpen the edge and that's your knife. And they're quite weak. They're generally not very good quality, um, whereas a forged knife has been um, created more like the old-fashioned way of your blacksmith hammering metal over an anvil. Um, it's obviously not done with an anvil anymore, but you've had actually a forging process going on. And so if when you're looking at the knife, if you notice that the very point end is narrower than the uh, than where it reaches the handle, that means almost certainly that it's been forged, and that's a good marker of a good knife. There's different kind of metals you can get. I think that a good quality stainless steel um, uh, knife is is good. In the past, uh, you'd always say that stainless steel isn't very good. Uh, it doesn't rust, but it blunts very uh, very easily. But nowadays, the quality of the stainless steel that we've got is very good. So I think a good quality um, stainless steel uh, chef's knife is important. Um, and you need a bread knife as well. And you can just use a, a cheap bread knife um, because you can't sharpen them. So don't worry too much about the, the, the bread knife that you have. Although I would say that the fewer serrations, um, the better. And the reason for that is, is that um, when you cut with a serrated um, knife, what you're doing is the, 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 the points you're piercing the, the surface of the food, or if it's like a tomato or, um, or a loaf of bread. Uh, because it's a smooth edge, it's difficult to cut, but those, those pointy bits, they dig in, and the pressure that you're pushing down um, just points at, forms this tiny little point, and then when you pull backwards and forward, the scalloped sharp edges cut into under the food. And um, the fewer points you have, the sharper, the more force they will um, exert on the food to pierce it. So in the same way that if you've got high heels on and you're walking across grass, um, the high heel is likely to sink into the mud because it's a small point. So in the same way, you want uh, lots of small points rather than um, so not too many um, small points rather than lots and lots of points, because lots of points will uh, spread the force out over a, over a wider area and it won't cut as well. And the other thing I would say is get a um, digital thermometer, uh, an instant read digital thermometer, uh, one that um, you can just put into 
uh, whatever it is you're cooking, if it's a, you can use it for cakes, you can use it for meat, uh, you put it in and then you push a little button and it tells you the temperature and so you know when meat is done and you never have that problem of, say, serving up fish and you cut into it and it's still raw in the middle. Um, so I would say they're the top three things that you, you must, must have. Excellent. Maybe I have some shopping to do. Maybe some purging too. <laughs> have you have you got one of those thermometers? Have you got a kind of a, a meat thermometer or a, a, a cooking thermometer? I do, but it's not digital. Okay, okay. Yeah. I would say that the ones that do quickly are, are, are really versatile. So if you get a really good quality one that has a big range of temperatures, you can even use it for um, making um, making candy. So um, so caramelizing uh, and doing kind of sugar work. Uh, you can even use it for that, so you don't even need to get a sugar thermometer if that's the kind of thing that you want to do. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, as you were researching and writing this book, did that change anything about the way you cook or like the foods that you order when you're in restaurants? Uh, yes, there's certain things that I would now uh, never do. So I wouldn't put um, oil, olive oil, into the pasta water. Uh, pretty much every uh cookery book says to stop the pasta sticking put some olive oil into the water uh, and so we just kind of do it put a glug of our olive oil in uh but it makes no difference whatsoever um, and when you think about it that makes sense and if you, if you look if you i presume do you guys do that if you're cooking pasta do you put in a glug of olive oil yeah i yep. do not i do um, don't bother. Don't bother. If you, if, you, if you look when you do it, the oil just um, stays on the surface like an oil slick. Um, and so it doesn't stop the pasta sticking at all. It just sort of floats on the surface and doesn't do anything at all. Uh, the way to stop your pasta sticking is to make sure that you use plenty of water and you stir. Because after about two or three minutes of it being in the, the boiling water, the outside of the hard pasta becomes sticky. And as it gets sticky, uh, the pasta bits can get stuck together. And so all you need to do for the first two, three, four, five minutes is just make sure that you stir. You stir well. And then that will stop it sticking and the oil has nothing to do with it whatsoever. If you want oil, if you want the flavor of uh, of olive oil, then uh, just put it on afterwards. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so you answered my question before. Like I had, my second question was, my third question, excuse me, was going to be about knives and, and kitchenware, but you answered that beautifully. So I want to ask you something about conscious shopping, and that's about whether heritage meats, corn-fed chicken, or organic food, first of all, do they actually taste any better, and are they actually better for you and the environment? That's a really good question, and you have to say yes and no. Um, there is a lot of hype around going for, you know, your heritage meats and your corn-fed chicken. Um, and where you, if you were to take scientific experiments and get right down to the the brass tacks of it all, the nutritional benefits of going for an organic chicken over a, an indoor cage chicken is very small. Yes, there are are, are higher omega-3s and more beneficial uh, balance of fats in your your organic meat, but taken as a whole, it's pretty negligible. So so for example, if you want to get lots of omega-3, you eat oily fish, you don't go and eat um, a cow that's been, that's had grass, for example. Um, The reason why you should do it, I think, are for other reasons, are for reasons of, I guess, um, welfare, animal welfare, uh, because I mean, in the book, uh, we've got a nice kind of diagram which shows the difference of uh, the differences in space that chickens get when they're um, in organic, or they're if you know, whether they're in free range, or they're indoor um, indoor reared. And it's horrific. It's absolutely terrifying. And you can go to YouTube and you can look at the videos of what it's like inside these um, the chicken slaughterhouses and how the horrendous, the horrendous conditions that they're, that they're in. So I think if nothing else, yes, there are um, some minor health benefits from going for your kind of your organic outdoor reared uh, meat options. But over and above that, when I'm when I'm eating, and I'm sure it's the same with you, I want to be able to um, know that I'm not eating something that suffered unnecessarily for my personal enjoyment. And 
I'm of the opinion that I don't mind paying a bit more for my meat and having meat less often if that means that I'm encouraging um, um, good husbandry of animals. In terms of corn-fed, uh, if something is corn-fed chicken, for example, it um, doesn't reflect the welfare of the animal at all. Uh, it just means that it's been fed on, on maize and corn, and so it has a kind of a yellowish sort of colour to it. So uh, it gives it a slightly different flavour, and there are some purported health benefits to it, but essentially it's a bit of a gimmick. Yeah, I, I actually don't eat... Um meat other than seafood for for the welfare reason but i always um i tell people i i try not to be a dick about being a vegetarian because <laughs> one day maybe i will want to eat it and in that case like i you know i feel the same way about it as as you like i would prefer to eat something that i know was at least you know it, while it was alive had a reasonable life you know yeah and i think an organic um, there's one of the big selling points of organic is that it hasn't had it's only had organic feed and lots of other things about specific um, not having pesticides and things on it. Um, that isn't the main reason that I would say that you should um, prefer organic, but organic gives you the best guarantee. Um, if you're just in a supermarket, say, uh, of knowing that that animal has been treated well. Um, but better than that, actually, I would say is that if you've got a local butcher, yep, then uh, go to them and you'll be able to know where the where the meats come from. And because sometimes, again, just because it's got organic on it doesn't mean that it's 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 been done um, in the spirit of it. So you could just about do everything minimal to get that organic label and yet still not treat your animals very well. Whereas you could have a local farm that doesn't meet the organic certified status, but they treat their animals extremely well um, and you're getting a better quality product at the end of it. Because if an animal's been treated well, then the meat itself um, is actually a bit better. It tastes a bit better, um, especially during the process in which they are in which they're killed. If they're very stressed at that point, then the, um, the adrenaline goes round uh, through their blood and their veins, and their muscles use up all the all the the energies the energy stores that they've got in those uh, the last hours of their life, and that actually results in the in the meat being uh, poor quality. It becomes dry and firm and and more tasteless than if the the animal has been well cared for. The other day I was talking to one of my uh, Fit Bottomed Eats writers and we were talking about flavors that work well in, in certain ways, but not in others. Like, so nobody wants to eat pumpkin spiced fish, right? Um, but like a maple glazed salmon, <laughs> heck yeah. And, um, you know, and then in other ways you would think like in terms of desserts, like pumpkin spice and maple, like those seem kind of similar, but they're not. And you have this really interesting graphic near the beginning of the book um, explaining why some flavors go go really well together. Like beef works well with coffee, beef works well with onion, onion, coffee, no. Um, you got it. Yeah. So, I, I mean, and it's a pretty complex graphic, so obviously we're not going to talk through the whole thing. But I wondered if you have just a little bit of just a little information that you can share on the science behind why that is because it's weird and when you start really looking at the breakdown I'm like oh you're right those don't go together and the thing in between them is perfect with both I don't understand why yeah yeah uh, that diagram actually took a lot of time to get it as um, as kind of simple as it is oh I'm uh, because sure. because it's a huge topic there's uh, recently the last sort of five or ten years this science of food pairing has kind of come to the fore. And the reason why some foods go together well is that they share some of the flavor compounds in them. The foods that we eat, the reason they have flavors is there are certain um, chemicals, certain, certain molecules in them that give them their flavor. Um, actually, what happens when you eat um, all the kind of the subtle flavors, you aren't sensing those on your tongue. Um, it's going up the, the, the back of your mouth and it's it's wafting up into your nose from kind of like the, the rear entrance. And when your, your nose senses it, when it's coming from the back, 
you have this illusion, this hallucination that it's actually coming from your tongue. So you're smelling it, but your, your brain tells you that it's coming from your tongue. So coffee, for example, there are over 200 specific individual um, chemicals that give coffee its very unique uh, flavor and its aroma. And scientists have catalogued all the different uh, flavor molecules, all the ones that we know about that uh, exist in all different foods. And they found that when you charted them, some foods shared the same flavor compound, the same substances that give them their flavor. And those ingredients also tasted good together. So, uh, for example, uh, one thing that um, I only discovered in my adult life was uh, maple syrup and bacon. And I know you guys will probably laugh because that's such an obvious thing to eat in America. Um, but over here, it's something that isn't really done. But those two ingredients have flavor compounds that they both have. And so that crossover gives it a kind of a harmony so that when you eat it, it just goes together well. So in that example, so beef, for example, um, shares flavor compounds with lots of other things. So it shares some flavor compounds with onion and it shares some flavor compounds with coffee. But those two individual things are quite different on their own. So you don't have oniony coffee. I am a meat eater and uh, we have the, at the time that we're recording it, we're going to have the holidays coming up, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. And by the way, I think the science of cooking would make a great holiday gift, let me just say. So um, <laughs> you have a few cooking books that you bust, and one, is, one of them is, excuse me, is basting a turkey will not keep it moist. So mm. as we are heading into the season, so how do we best cook that turkey? And, and may I ask also ro the pot roast and ham, because those are the things I'm going to be having and cooking. Okay, um, we tend not to do pot roast over here, I'll be honest with you. Um, but in terms of the, um, so when you say pot roast, what do you, what, how, how do you do that? I, I put it in the oven and I, I include veggies and uh, it's usually kind of fatty and I have olive oil on it and, and pepper and it's, you cook it at a really high temperature and then you turn the oven off. Okay. okay. And then let it sit, and then you gotta let it sit there. It's the perfect roast. I'll find that recipe and I'll put it in the show notes. I got it actually. It's like one uh, those, that's great. Yeah, it's one of those bachelor websites, like Bachelor Cooking. <laughs> like so Esquire you, magazine you, featured it. Uh, nice, nice. Do, do you put it in? Is it in a liquid or is it just in like an oven? oven no, in the oven. Tray? In the oven, and you get a pot roast rack, and it's yeah, it's got to be very fatty. Okay. Yeah, you cook it like super high, and then you turn the oven off, and you leave it alone for like two and a half hours. And then you take it out okay. let it settle just a little, little bit, and it's perfect. So there's my tip okay. for you, by the way. <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, yeah, we, we kind of do similar things, but we just uh, don't call it pot roast. So now I know. Now I know. Um, so for when you're basting, it doesn't make it uh, more moist. What you're actually doing is you're giving the outside a nicer, crispier edge and a more flavorful edge. Because when you're when you're spooning on that that oil and the liquid from the um, that's been that's been coming off the bird, uh, you're essentially coating it with oil and you're frying the surface. So that's what's giving it the crispy uh, the crispy coating. It doesn't get. You kind of think, yeah, if I put it on there, then maybe the liquid gets soaked in, um, soaked into the meat. But it doesn't. It just it isn't true because meat itself. Meat is made up of um, countless little muscle fibers, which are kind of hair width uh, little fibers. And they've got when when the meat is fresh, there's there's liquid in each of those little fibers that, that the individual cells. And as you cook it, they squeeze down and that uh, and like a sponge, the liquid inside gets squashed out, gets squeezed out. Um, and so you putting liquid on it. It, it, you've got you've got a squeezed sponge. You can't get anything in there anymore. Um, so it just rolls off the surface. And you see that when you put liquid on there, the the kind of it sort of rolls off the edge. It doesn't soak in. It's it's not um, yeah. It's not on a, it's not an empty sponge. It is it's something that you can't get any more liquid into. Which incidentally is why marinades. You can marinate something for a really long time but the flavor doesn't actually soak in very far at all for the same reason there just isn't the space um, for liquid to get inside meat. Um, but if you want to have a moist um, turkey, a moist bird, one of the best things to do is to um, lay it flat. So a technique called spatchcocking. So you break it down um, down the kind of the backbone and then you can lay it flat. And that means that it cooks evenly because 
the longer that your uh, meat is in the oven, the, the more it will dry out. So the idea is to let heat get into the, into the middle and cook it as much as possible without letting it be in the oven for too long so that all the moisture is lost. And if you've got a whole bird, then the, the bulk of the bird with all the breast is going to take a long time to cook if it's all kind of in one big round fully formed ball um, while the the legs and the wings will cook really quickly so the best way to do it is to spread it out better still um, is to break it apart although that the problem is is that you like to serve it on the table as one whole thing don't you that's what i was going to say right with the stuffing and everything yeah that that is the problem you can you can uh you can leave it in salty water the the night before some people do that um i know that's do you guys do that brining you, um, brining yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you do that yep yep it's okay i mean what's your experiences with with brining i, I think it's it's okay it's fine so we we do it and of course i don't actually eat it so i can't I'm, this is all secondhand um <laughs> relayed information <clears throat> but for thanksgiving we we host and we generally we have an infrared fryer so it's like an oilless fryer that we make our turkey with um which is awesome because then it leaves the whole oven open to me to make all of the things that i want to make and mm -hmm. all the you know everyone else can go outside with the the turkey and my husband has i think it's maybe alton brown's uh brine recipe with i don't know lots of fruits and different things and mm -hmm. he swears by it he mm -hmm. loves it i don't think he would do it any other way but mm -hmm. i also don't know how much of that has to do with the method of cooking mm -hmm. it might be different if we were putting it in the in the oven or if we were spatchcocking it which i just yeah. really like to say it's <laughs> <laughs> great word great word it is. um so the flavors themselves won't really penetrate very far. They will give the outside some flavor. It, the, the, the flavor molecules um, can't penetrate very far. They maybe get the first sort of few millimeters or so. So, so you're never going to get it all the way into the middle. But the salty water does work. The salt uh, goes into the meat. We say it's this process called um, osmosis. You might remember that from your school days. But, but essentially, the salt goes into the meat, and as it goes into the meat, it kind of pulls some of the liquid with it, and so you, you're managing to, to squeeze more liquid into this already filled sponge, if you like, if you use my kind of the sponge analogy. So it works a bit, but it's not brilliant. There's only so much liquid you can get into your bird. The best thing is to not overcook it. But the one thing I would say about turkey is that it does inherently taste quite dry. Um, it doesn't have much fat in it. Uh, it doesn't have much of um, what's called connective tissue. Uh, connective tissue is the the whitish coloured stuff that you see. You tend to see a lot of it in in cuts of cuts of beef. And that when you cook, when you slow cook things, that breaks down into gelatin, which has this kind of velvety, smooth mouthfeel to it. It's the same thing that means that uh, that lets jello set uh, gelatin. Uh, and because turkey doesn't have any of that, the, the flavor profile, it doesn't have an abundance of different flavor molecules. It inherently tastes quite dry. So the secret is also what you serve it with. So the, the kind of the gravy, the sauce, ideally you want something that is that is rich, um, that has fat in it, that ideally has some some of the gelatin in that you've maybe used from the kind of the, what's at the bottom of the roasting tray. Um, they're the sort of things that will lift your, your turkey dish. Wonderful. Now, anybody who loves spicy food has had that mm -hmm. moment where they've made a dish and they're really excited about it and they just, they made it too hot to enjoy. <laughs> so uh, I wondered if you'd share your tips for adding, for making sure that you're adding the right amount of spice. Mm -hmm. And then also, is it possible to tone down a dish that's too spicy or to, you know, get your lips back after you've eaten something that has burned them straight off? Uh, yes and no. Uh, chili is a really interesting thing. Chili is actually the, the thing that makes it hot is a is a poison. It's called capsaicin. Uh, it's the same stuff that's in pepper spray. Uh, it's a horrible sort of I say horrible. It's a very unpleasant substance uh, that is the defense mechanism of the uh, the chili, uh, and it's designed so that animals don't eat it. Although, interestingly, birds are immune to it. They can't taste chili heat. So animals leave it alone. Uh, birds eat the 
bright red little chili peppers uh, they fly off and then they spread the seeds far and wide so that's how they kind of they propagate um well, that's chili cool. is that is that amazing that's kind I of have no idea uh, yeah nature being really smart being really smart but what it does is it tricks when, when you have something hot that capsaicin molecule the same thing that's in pepper spray um tricks your 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 nerve fibers your pain um nerves in your mouth uh, and anywhere else in the body as it happens uh, to feel hot burning pain what it does the molecule goes into it takes a few seconds to work we all know this if you have something hot you go oh that's not too bad and then 15 seconds later your mouth is burning that's because yes. that molecule takes a little while just to go into your tongue and it latches into the pain fibers um there are, there are particular pain fibers that are just designed to sense when your mouth is burning these molecules go in there and they latch onto them and they make them fire so your brain thinks oh my gosh i've eaten something really hot and unpleasant my mouth is burning these these um so your, your brain thinks there's something over 42 45 degrees c or hotter in your mouth regardless of of the temperature of the food itself now how do you tone it down if that has happened the problem is is that when you've eaten it that molecule has already got in to that that pain fiber and there, there ain't no getting it out uh, you just got to bide your time and 15 minutes or so it will have um the the nerve fiber should have recovered and you should be back to normal uh there are things though that can make it uh can amplify the the chilliness and there are some things that can make it a bit better uh, the one thing that I often have heard said is that if you have beer with a curry, um, that will take away the heat. Fizzy drinks are probably one of the worst things, like your, your beers and your lagers, probably one of the worst things you can have with chilli food because the fizzing, the kind of the effervescence that's in your mouth when you're eating it, uh, that sensitises your tongue even more, so it makes it hotter. The only thing that beer does do is it makes you a bit drunk, so it just kind of numbs all your senses, so perhaps that way it doesn't make you uh, feel the effects so much. <laughs> what you can do is you can, kind of, you can try to trick your mouth into telling your brain this actually isn't hot. You Mind, you think you're feeling burning heat, but it's really not hot. And so you can do things uh, like um, ice, for example, or cool yogurts and milk. They're things that that give your brain signals to say that your mouth isn't really burning, they can help a bit. And interestingly, mint and menthols, they do, they do the reverse of what the chili does. They uh, have substances that latch onto the, the cool um, sensing nerve fibers in your tongue, which is why mint has this kind of, they put mint into chewing gums and, and toothpaste because it has this cooling effect because for the same reason it's tricking your brain into thinking there's something cool in your mouth so by doing these things mints uh, yogurts and milks and if it gets desperate try ice you're just trying to persuade your brain to to know that this isn't actually burning your mouth training helps as well you can you just get used to it after, after a while so i eat eggs for breakfast almost every day mm -hmm. what are your best tips for storing eggs and how long can they keep fresh Yes, yes. It's, this is this is quite a controversial one. It's one of those things that you don't you think, oh, eggs, eggs is an egg. But then when you bring it up in conversation, everybody's got an opinion on how they look after their eggs, how they cook their eggs, and um, and everybody else is wrong unless you do it your way. Um, what the science says is that generally speaking, for for many purposes, room temperature eggs are better. So if you are uh, poaching or frying. Uh, a room temperature egg is best because if it's cold, it cools the pan down. So if you're frying an egg, it will cool the pan down. It will mean that the white spreads out further and it's not going to cook as well. It'll take longer to cook. If you're making cake, it's also better at room temperature because when you're beating the egg, um, the, if it's warmer, if it's at room temperature, then as you're beating, you're unwinding, you're unraveling, you're breaking apart uh, proteins that are in the egg. And uh, that happens more easily at room temperature. So if you use room temperature eggs, you get a uh, finer, more even crumb. Uh, if you're trying to separate eggs, so say you're making a mayonnaise and you want the or, or, or a meringue and you want to separate the egg from the white, then that's easier with um, fridge stored eggs uh, because it's it's cooler. Uh, they're easier to separate. They they don't the, the yolk and the the whites are less likely to spread apart. They're, they're thicker. They're more viscous when they're colder. In terms of the health point of view, 
Over here in uh, in Europe, the general advice is to store eggs at room temperature, whereas for you guys, I believe the official advice is to store it in the fridge. Am I right there? That's you right. Keep mine. <laughs> Um, historically, the reason for that is that the rates of salmonella in the US have been a bit higher than in the UK and Europe, although now there's much less of a difference. The other uh, reason behind it is that the cleaning process, um, eggs in the US are generally cleaned uh, before they're sold and they're kind of they're, they're sprayed as they're, as they're cleaned and sometimes chemicals are used in the cleaning process. And the fear is is that when that, that cleaning process strips off uh, the protective, some of the protective outer coat called the cuticle on the eggshell. And that protective outer coat um, serves to help stop any bugs that are on the outside, on, on the shell, from penetrating inside. So the fear is that if that's been stripped away a bit, you've weakened the egg's defences a bit. Uh, and so the chance of it getting infected uh, and so going rotten and bad and dangerous is higher. And so it's best to keep them in the cold, um, which will slow down any possibility of bugs growing. Whereas in the in the UK and in Europe, they say you don't want to put it in the fridge because it causes condensation to fall on the outside of the egg. And that will encourage the growth of bugs on the surface of the egg. Ultimately, though, I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference. They do keep longer if you keep them in the fridge. But whatever you do, don't keep them in the fridge door. Because if you're in the fridge door, you're opening and closing the fridge door, the temperature of the eggs is going up and down, and you're shaking the eggs the whole time, and that's thinning the whites. And so you're going you're gonna to end up with a much uh, poorer egg when you come to use it. So put it, uh, get rid of the egg tray thing that always comes with the fridge and put it inside maybe in the box and towards the back. And if you put it in a closed container... That will stop uh, flavours from getting in because even though the shell it looks hard, it's actually porous, and gases can come and come come in and um, and leave from that egg. So it can actually absorb strong flavours uh, from from things. I don't know if you've got like cheeses or pickled onions or something. I don't know something really stinky in your fridge can taint the flavour of that egg a bit. And it's this property of the the shell that can let gases go in and out that means that you can judge how uh, fresh an egg is over time gas escapes from uh, from the egg and there's a little kind of um, bubble of air in under the under one of the edges of the of the egg and that's called an air cell and over time that cell gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the the egg itself dehydrates a little bit and and um, gas leaves and it's this ability for gases to come in and out of the eggshell that means that we can also judge how fresh an egg is. So over time, the egg inside starts to lose its moisture and it dehydrates a little bit. As it does that, through these tiny little uh, microscopic pores that are in, this, uh, in, the, in, the, in the shell, air gets pulled in. There's a little bubble just underneath the surface of the egg called the air cell. And this this bubble of air gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time. Uh, and we think that that little bubble of air is designed to get bigger so that if there is a chick growing inside the egg, that will be its first gasp of air that it will have before it cracks out through the shell. It gives it its first breath um, so to help it on its way out. Um, but over time, that, that, that air cell, the amount of air in your egg gets bigger. Uh, and so you can test how big the air cell is. You can either hold up your ear and give it a shake. And if it's sloshing around, you can hear it moving around inside. That means that it isn't a fresh egg. Put it in some water. And if it um, stands on end, then it's starting to get a bit old. It's probably about three weeks old. And if it floats to the surface, it's four or five weeks old um, or older. And it's probably off by that point. I have learned so much today. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I feel um, at least 15% smarter than I did at the start of this interview. There'll be a test later. Yes. Well, I'm I prepared. I've been making notes. However, we now have uh, one last question for you. Yes. And that is, what is the last song you listened to before you joined us for this podcast? Wow, what's the I last know. song I listened to? Well, actually, I was being a bit sort of um, posh and cultured and listening to some semi-classical music by a composer called Carl Jenkins, um, which makes me sound really sort of um, cultured. 
but I guess that's not really a song. It's just kind of it's nice because you can put it on in the background and it doesn't distract you too much. But um, I am a closet heavy metal fan, and there was a, uh, a heavy metal gig just in our town uh, this last weekend, and so I think that was um, probably the last. Uh, it was it was some random heavy metal band playing something <laughs> loud and screamy. That was probably the last song I actually listened to. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Defy your expectations. There you go. There you go. No, it's fantastic. Well, thank you so much once again for being on the show today. It was very educational. I have to tell you that. Excellent. Well, yes. Um, nice to um, nice to chat with you guys, and um, hope that you have um, much success in your future cooking ventures. Love this show? Tell us why in a five-star review on iTunes, and we'll read it on the air. Also, make sure you are a subscriber. If you want to reach out to say hi or have a question about a recent episode, yay, well, feel free to email us at podcast at fitboundgirls.com. And if this podcast jives perfectly with your brand, consider sponsoring the show. Get more info by emailing advertising at fitbottomgirls.com. Find all kinds of Fit Bottom goodness online and on social media at Fit Bottom Girls, Fit Bottom Mamas, Fit Bottom Eats, and Fit Bottom Zen. And if books and movies are your thing, check out the other podcast I co-host called Book vs. Movie, which you can find anywhere where you search for podcasts. Thanks for listening.